Welcome to Generation Digital Workforce, the podcast that's here to explore the role of robotic process automation and other digital technologies. Whether you're just getting started or you're looking for advanced strategies and tactics, if you're curious about where human and digital workers are coming together to transform the future of work, then this podcast is for you. All right, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Generation Digital Workforce. We're really glad you joined us. Welcome back. Today, I'm excited to have with me Walt Carter. Walt Carter is a Chief Digital Officer and CIO with Homestar Financial Corporation, and he's also recently been named as Constellation Research Business Transformation 150. Such an honor to have you with us here today, Walt. Pleasure to be with you today, Zena. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background? Okay, a little bit about me. I, uh, I'm a military brat, grew up moving around every two or three years, graduated from college in uh, North Carolina with a degree in physics, went into the Air Force, uh, worked on uh, nuclear missiles for a few years, and then did uh, Airborne Command and Control for a few years, and then did NORAD headquarters uh, for about a year before I got out. And along the way, I picked up a master's in administration, courtesy of the U.S. Air Force. Since then, I've I've been leading technology teams, frankly, uh, for a number of years now, probably more than 25 years. And I'm actually in a uh, a role that uh, I started at Homestar two years ago, but it's the third mortgage company that I've been with as a CIO slash CMO. And so I'm, I'm, I've kind of developed an affinity for the mortgage business, to be honest with you. And, you know, and then, you know, along the way, I've been doing some interesting work on digital transformation, doing a lot of uh, thinking about, you know, our, our subject matter today, the generation, uh, generational requirements uh, of the you know, kind of the modernized workforce and the future workforce. Got myself involved with a lot of really great conversations on the future of work, especially after we come out of this COVID-19, you know, kind of, you know, era that we're in, however long this lasts. But we're seeing, you know, I think some interesting new bubbles that we need to to think about as we look at the future of work. So excited to be with you today. Happy to have this conversation. Great. Uh, From a rocket scientist to a mortgage expert, that's uh, quite a a journey there. We're, uh, that that's a that's a whole other conversation in and of itself. I'm sure. Well, you know, and it's part of my throwaway stick. To be honest with you, is you know what we're doing in the mortgage business does not require a rocket scientist. On the other hand, if you need one, I am one. Um, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, so Walt, tell us a little bit about your role on the advisory board with Constellation Research and um, this, uh, you know, being named Business Transformation 150 uh, 2020 and, and how that relates to your studies around the future of work. Well, it's, it's really uh, closely related in some ways. I mean, there's, there's lots of people out there, and I know, Zena, you talk to, to lots of my peers uh, on your podcast and many of them, frankly, are thinking about doing things, right? They're, they're just kind of looking at what others are doing and thinking about doing it, but they're not actually doing it, you know? And then, you, you know, probably the people that you're talking to are more likely, like myself, to be actually in the fight doing things, learning and, uh, and trying to push, you know, the technology envelope forward in their respective companies. 
And that's certainly what I've been doing uh, at Homestar. And frankly, for my whole career, I've always kind of lived out on the, the edge of new technology. So, Walt, in our previous conversations, one of the things I've I've heard you talk about is that digital transformation is is really not about a technology, but it's more around a a cultural shift. And of course, that's one of the things that we love to talk about here on the program as we talk about you know the the trends that push generations forward. You know, and I've heard others in the space say you know that you can't have technology solve technology problems necessarily either. But what do you mean by digital transformation is not about technology, but about cultural shift? Dig into that a little bit for me. Sure, it, you know, the, at the fundamental level, I'd say it's, it's really because when you think about what technology can do for you, it really is a tool set, right? And, and, and technology, it, you know, in a lot of ways is no different than, you know, a knife or a rock or, or, you know, any of the many different tools that, that mankind has, has used over, over the, 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 the years. When you look at, you know, AI and machine learning and, you know, and I know you guys at Blue Prism love RPA and I love it too, you know, but all of them are essentially no different than the rock or the hammer, right? It's just a tool for people to use to, to get work done. And so a lot of times people get enamored of a particular technology and, you know, it's kind of the shiny object syndrome that a lot of people talk about, but they lose track of, you know, well, what were we supposed to be accomplishing with this tool set, right? And did we pick the right tool for the job? And so I look at digital transformation, you know, as, as more or less a nebulous term that means what you want it to sometimes which means for us as, as change captains, if you will, if, if I'm the leader of a change initiative, I gotta get really focused around what is exactly the kind of change or the kind of process that we're gonna apply these tools to. Are we, are we doing that correctly with the right tool set? And will we get the human response that, we're in, that we were looking for at the beginning of the, of the thought process, right? And that's why I think it's more cultural. It's not about the tools so much, it's about what what do the humans do in response to having this tool set deployed, right? What what do we free up the humans from when we turn on you know RPA uh, you know threads? When we, when we open up more automation, are we freeing up the the people that are working with us to do higher order thinking, higher order analysis, and getting them out of the routinized tasks that that we could easily automate with tool sets like RPA? So so that's what I mean when I when I say that I. I know a lot of people have different conceptualizations of what digital transformation is, but for me, you know, the key word there is not digital, it's actually transformation. And so when you think about it that way, you're going, well, look, you know, I'm just, I'm just moving away from analog tools to digital tools. That's a pretty simple thing that we've been doing for years in IT. Now let's talk about what's the transformation. Is it truly transformation or is it just optimization of the existing process? Because that's different. Is it just digitization of things that were no not 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 really digitized before, but need to be now in order to you know accommodate a, a better portion of that workflow? Transformation usually is a bigger word that implies we're going to go from something that was you know kind of old and 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 getting getting you know unacceptable in the marketplace to something that's completely different and new, and, and that's where the leadership element comes. From you know, really to bear, I think it's more about leading people, leading your culture to adapt and adopt 
whatever that new tool set is, and and literally to move from the old to something new. So I'm gonna stop there and let you uh, kind of probe into that if you want. I love that you really hone in and focus on that word transformation. I, I think that that uh, you know whether you're moving from analog to digital, as you said, or transforming other areas of your business, that is where the leadership comes into play. I'm wondering what are some of the techniques and the and the um, tips that you could give to our listeners around how, as a digital officer and CIO, to lead that that transformational shift. And, you know, I guess I'll say to some extent, deprioritize the technology over prioritizing the cultural shift. But in your role as a technical person, if, if I can uh, kind of put you in that bucket, how do you step out of that and be the leader of the culture? Well, I have to I have to drop my own love for for the technology, right? And I have to embrace my love for my fellow humans in order to lead them correctly. You know, one of my my great mentors over the years is is actually my father-in-law. Uh, he was one of the the best leaders that I ever worked for, and uh, he says you got to love them and then lead them. And if you skip the first step, it's almost impossible to complete the second step. And I agree with him 100% about that, you know, and a lot of us, you know, are drawn into technology careers because, you know, frankly, it's it's a lot easier to work with machines sometimes than it is to work with humans. And, um, you know, so so you, you kind of got to move away from that love of the technical and the technologies and, and find your love for the humans, you know, and the people. Well, let's just call them people for now, because you can't you can't lead humans. You can lead people. You can lead groups. You can lead you know, organizations and, and, and you can, you can only do that when they trust you. And, uh, and if they think that you're all about the technology and not about them, they won't trust you. So early on, when you're defining what this change is, you've really got to focus in on how are my people going to respond to this? How are they feeling about it? How can I get them to tell me? How can I get them to trust me enough to tell me what they really think? And then how do I take that input, turn it right back around and say, okay, then here's what we are doing. It's not what I am doing and it's not what the company is doing, it's what we as a group are doing. And, and then you get into the real details, which is how are we gonna get this done? So we, we know what we're doing, we know why we're doing it, and we know how we're going to do it and what each of us has as a role within that change, right? And we're all counting on the team members to pull it all together. And the bigger the scale of the project and the, the wider the reach across the enterprise, the more people you have to have involved in, in pulling off the change. And they've got to they've got to have absolute clarity around why, what, and how, and what their role is. And then they have to be able to stay aligned. And I think that's the, the fundamental uh, job of the leader is to just make sure that there's always clarity and that there's always alignment back to here's what we all agreed we were doing in order to accomplish this change. And that's a lot harder to do than it is to say, I will tell you. But if you're not focused like a laser beam on clarity and alignment throughout your change initiative, you will go off the rails and you, your people will take it in the direction that they want it to go and not in the direction that the whole team has decided on early on. In my experience, I've only been doing this for 36 years now, so I still got a lot to learn, uh, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that, that what I just said is the truth. 
I agree with you, and I don't quite have as many years under my belt as you do, but um, in my experience, uh, what you say rings true. So great advice, um, regardless of what kind of change initiative you're trying to lead at your business, whether it be digital transformation or something different. One of the things uh, that you said earlier uh, that I want to drill back on, on uh, the, the term you used was higher level thinking. And it reminds me, you know, of a shift that we've had in our workforce in moving from, you know, workers that are very hands-on uh, service oriented to the world uh, and the rise of, if you will, the knowledge worker. And mm -hmm. and what what do you think that shift in the knowledge worker, the rise of the knowledge worker, if you will, within our business uh, as we know it today, which was certainly a transformation when it happened. Let's uh, let's acknowledge that. But what's happened with the rise of that knowledge worker in the business world that we're seeing today that may in fact be driving the need for this analog to digital transformation that businesses see themselves in today? Yeah, this is a real, really interesting area, uh, Zena, for, for me personally. I mean, you know, Drucker, uh, Peter Drucker, the great uh, management thinker from the last century, uh, frankly, coined that phrase, knowledge worker, probably back in the 1950s, uh, is I think when that, when that first came around. Uh, yes, and it, yes. was a, it was a contrast with, you know, uh, another uh, gentleman named Taylor who had done work motion studies in the 1910 era, right? And said, you know, if you're, if you're doing coal mining, it turns out if you let the coal miners rest 15 minutes out of every hour, they'll shovel more coal for the whole day than they would if they didn't have those rest periods. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, even with, with Drucker's observations and, and prognostications, which were awesome, by the way, Highly recommend everybody go out and get, you know, The Effective Executive by, by Peter Drucker. It's a simple, easy book to, to pull in. And if you're in a leadership role, uh, nothing has changed dramatically since he wrote that. You still need to be able to do all of those things. When you go and think about that, that contrast between somebody on the line working in a coal mine or somebody in our mortgage business that's moving a loan through the pipe, Versus the, the architect that's trying to design the systems that would allow you to automate those processes within the line and, and remove those, quote, quote, unquote, routinized tasks, right, that are kind of mind-numbing for a human, it really does change the game. And then I, I want to say this, I think over the last 20 years, we've seen, you know, some really, really massive shifts, shifts in expectations and so when we start thinking generationally and we start looking at the kids that have grown up with technology as a part of their lives, all of their lives versus somebody my age that, you know, is kind of an adapter to technology, didn't really have that early on. I'm, I still remember holding the antenna for my dad on the TV so we could get a clear reception. Uh, right? Well, couldn't agree with you more. I was the remote control. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had that experience, too. But I will tell you that that because everybody's now carrying the equivalent of a supercomputer on their hip or in their purse, right, it, it, the expectations have changed dramatically. Bezos and, and the Amazon guys have, have really changed the level of expectation that all of us have, all of us, uh, not just me, but, you know, my parents and, 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 you know, the folks that are, you know, generations ahead of me in time are also having their expectations massively changed and shifted with regard to what they expect 
about how technology serves them. And so if you're in a corporate environment or an enterprise environment, then you've really got to look at, you know, okay, that, that change in expectation affects everybody, not just the ones that grew up in it. But it also means that I've got to do some things that, that we maybe have never thought about before around aligning all of my social media with my internal systems, right? So internally and externally, I'm congruent and I'm collecting information and sharing information in meaningful ways with my customers, with my employees, uh, with my, my external stakeholders who are involved in my value chain, right? All of that stuff's got to be aligned and it's got to be congruent. And then I've got to manage a whole lot of things that we never thought about because of that requirement. So now let's get into, you know, the difference in a knowledge worker, you know, today, 60 years later, let's say, you know, so let's, let's give Drucker, you know, a 1960 kind of a timeline for defining a knowledge worker. And now here we are in 2020, 60 years later, and it's making, I think, a lot of people uncomfortable. I, I would tell you that, you know, one of the biggest problems that, that I see for our HR friends is that, you know, there's, there's this um, incompatibility, let's say, with the compensation and the expectations in a digital world for how you get paid for what you do. You know, it's really easy to measure, you know, output when you're, when you're measuring, you know, wagons of coal coming out of the mine. That's an easy measure, right? How much does your architect contribute to value contribution? How much does your business analyst contribute to value contribution? How much does, because truthfully, a lot of times you get into a little war right there, right? If the, if the business analyst has done a great job on defining the requirements, not, not collecting them, because that's, an, that's a, you know, a mistake that a lot of people make. Oh, I'll just walk around with a basket and collect all your requirements, and then I'll hand that to the architect, and he'll go build it, right? She'll go build it. And that's not, that's not what happens, right? The, the requirements gathering process is usually a brutal negotiation and a constant check to make sure that, that you know, from, from person to person, we're communicating effectively. And there's a certain amount of mind reading that has to take place there too. So the better the BA, the more of a mind reader they turn out to be. How do you compensate for that mind reading capability? And is that mind reading capability driven by their experience and frustrations of trying to get the requirements right over a long career? You know, could a new BA be as effective in that role and, and create as much value or value contribution contribution during that phase, right? As the architect who then designs the system or the, the set of systems that are going to fulfill that need, right? And then you hand it off to a developer who then goes and builds what the architect has drawn out. And my point is, it's really easy to measure units of coal. It's really hard to measure value contribution and compensate for it correctly going forward. And that's a problem that we still haven't solved. And that's really what got me involved in, you know, kind of the future of work conversation with the Constellation guys more than anything else. Uh, you know, we're seeing this move away from a, a company for life culture, uh, which our parents probably had. You know, to now many of us are looking at multiple stops along a career, a work life. And sometimes many of us are looking at multiple career changes within a work life. And so this compensation thing turns out to be pretty important. And it also, you know, has a lot to do with how we're wired, right? You know, we, we always want to be part of a tribe or part of a community. You know, it's just it's the way people are wired right from birth. We always want to belong 
Uh, it's why family is so important. It's why, you know, being in a good place at work with your team members is, is so important, right? And so you start thinking about these kinds of needs and, and that flies in the face of the gig economy, which says, I'm just going to move from gig to gig and team to team and deliver my skills into, you know, some value chain as I can as while I'm growing and developing as a, as a skilled person. And so you see this, this, you know, it's kind of split, if you will. I think the the folks in the gig economy, from what I understand, are going, I don't really want to be part of the gig economy, Walt. To be honest with you, I just want to be with a team of people that I like and trust that I fit in with, but I, I want to be secure. But at the same time, if I do that, I get locked into a job that doesn't fulfill me and doesn't offer me the opportunity for growth and development of my skills. And so I feel like I'm falling behind unless I go over to the gig economy and I take the risk of moving from team to team and job to job and, and, and project to project. So to me, there's some, there's some really big issues here that we've got to do a lot more work on to, to figure out what the right answers are. Yeah, absolutely. There is so much to unpack in, in, uh, in what you just uh, said. So I want to, I want to dig into a couple of areas um, if we can. One is this idea of being compensated around the value that you bring to the business. I'm curious, you know, for me, I know a lot of what I do does not feel valuable. I'm going to be quite honest with you. You know, as a, you know, executive in my um, organization, there are things I do which, you know, probably don't require me to do them. And I think that, you know, a lot of the linksters, those are the individuals who are born after 2002, as you said, who, you know, literally technology is, is baked in, you know, from their birthday, <laughs> literally their birthday. Right. And these people have a different expectation about, what they have to do versus what I'm going to say should be done for them. And when I say should be done for them, I don't necessarily mean by another uh, people, but it just done for them. So, you know, as a knowledge worker, having been part of that shift, not for the uh, entire time, but certainly the last, um, well, let's just call it 30 years, you know, I've seen the amount of work that I have to do, which doesn't contribute value, kind of add up this need to manage the analog. And so I myself see the value of a digital worker and being able to offset the things that I do that don't bring value to the organization. Do you think that that increased, you know, work being placed on the knowledge worker that doesn't add the value is contributing to the digital transformation we're going through where, you know, kind of every company is becoming a technology company, if you will? You know, what do you see as the answer for this younger generation in, in being able to enable them in a way that allows them to have that I'm going to work for this one company for life because they're getting what they need in order to feel like they're giving that value back. Yeah. I, like I said, I think this one is, is one of the, the thornier questions that, that, you know, corporate leaders and business leaders are going to have to wrestle with for the next several years. Not a whole lot of easy answers. You know, it, it, there's some, there's some things that are obvious to me though, that I, I'd like to call out. A big part of, you know, creating value in an organization is, is not just, you know, heads down keyboard work 
it turns out that conversational skills, the soft skills are becoming more and more important. And lots of people are figuring that out, right? They're, they're seeing that, man, we've really got to have people with, you know, a higher level of empathy and the ability to connect to other people. Communications is so much harder now, right? Because things are more complex and, uh, and the more complex, the longer those conversations can take in order for you to get to, you know, a shared vision of what that thing is that we're talking about. And so to me, the executive skill set is, is kind of rising to the top in, in value contribution in a lot of ways, because it's just so freaking hard, you know, and then you, you start looking at, you know, building relationships and, you know, and making sure that you understand where people are coming from. Because if you understand their context, it actually helps you communicate to them better. If you understand their values and what drives them individually, it's easier to communicate to them, right? But that takes a lot of time. Getting to know people takes a lot of time. You know, in the military, we have this thing called span of control. We restrict the number of direct reports that anybody can have, usually to, you know, a number that's between three and seven. And it turns out that there's a lot of wisdom wrapped up into to that span of control, three to seven, because it, turn, it turns out that in order for you to build an effective relationship, effective enough to really you know, guide, lead, mentor, whatever your role is in that structure, right? you really got to spend a lot of time conversating. You've got to have a lot of conversations to understand their, their view of the world, their context, their, their individual challenges. Their values is probably the most important thing. And where your values and their values differentiate, you've got to be willing to cross that ditch and be able to step on their side in order to, to have conversations and drive work. And then with those relationships, you can actually drive lots of value contribution. If you don't have them, the communication gulf gets so wide, it's almost impossible to connect and, and collaborate. And this is where I think you've got, you know, the, the, the future is going, I think, into, you know, an interesting, here's a way of thinking about it, right? So I, I actually hire now for IQ, EQ, and LQ. And what I mean by that is pretty obvious with IQ. I'm looking for somebody that's, you know, a little to the right of, of the mean on the standard deviations. So one full standard deviation to the right with IQ, one full standard deviation to the right of the mean with, with EQ or emotional quotient, the ability to be connected to others. And LQ is what I define uh, as learning quotient. There's, uh, you know, University of Kent over in, uh, in England has done a lot of really interesting work on, you know, the neuroscience of learning. And, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from, from you know, reading their stuff. Jack Moss says LQ is... Uh, love quotient, by the way. And I think that's so closely aligned with EQ that I don't want to differentiate that way. So with all respect to, to the multi-billionaire Jack Ma from Alibaba, I'm just going to kind of keep LQ in, in place. So if I find somebody that, that no matter what their age has a higher than average IQ, higher than average EQ, and higher than average ability to learn something new and, and develop some basic proficiency enough to pass it along to somebody else, and train others on it, then I can I can make a major difference. And, and anecdotally, I would tell you that talking to other CIOs, we've all agreed that you know, anytime you find one of those kinds of people and get them on your team, you get a force multiplier that's four to 10 times the productivity of what you would get from somebody that's at the mean that HR is pushing at you and said, yeah, they meet all your requirements while they're right here 
but without that extra little bit, that, that extra edge, you don't get that. And so, again, this is back to this conversation about what is a knowledge worker. You know, I, it, well, a knowledge worker in my mind is somebody that has the ability to think for themselves and design the checklist for others. And if you're just a checklist follower, which is what you see, you know, kind of when you go to the other, the, the mean, if you will, right? I, I, I'm not looking for checklist followers. I'm trying to do new things. I'm trying to do exciting things. I'm trying to accomplish, you know, a real change in, you know, ease of, of burden, as you talked about in your role. I mean, I think a lot of those things can be lifted off of the people in our organizations and can be automated. But there's also, you know, a requirement for still executives and for managers and, and, and folks on the line to understand why we did that, right? And what was the driving force behind that automation? Why did we, why did we choose to automate those things? There are a lot of things that I, I think, you know, we should never automate and should stay away from because we need that deeper connection and that, that human-to-human interface is always going to be the most important contributor to your success and your ability to drive value for an organization. I'm going to stop there. I think I've talked way too long. Yeah, yeah well, I actually, I'd like to dig into that, that last bit that, that you, uh, you know, covered there around, you know, that human to human communication and, and contact and, and working alongside each other. And, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more about hiring people who are above average uh, in those three IQ, EQ and LQ areas. But, you know, a lot of companies are finding themselves being forced into a world right now where people aren't able to get together, right? I mean, we just, you know, had our Blue Prism World event this summer, which is usually a gathering of several thousand people over the course of two days. And, you know, you you, you have a, a, a lot of opportunity to engage with one another and, and talk and communicate and, you know, leverage these skills. Um, this year, unfortunately, it was digital. So I attended the event sitting at my desk <laughs> and it was, uh-huh. it was very um, odd. And I'm a remote worker. I'm I'm a home-based worker, so I'm used to being remote. But yet, it was it's still very odd. And having not you know gotten on a plane and traveled since February is is extremely odd uh, in the world that I you know typically live in. So what do you what do you think that that you know dare I say COVID and and the the, the global pandemic we're in right now? What what do we need to learn about the future of work? I mean what for a lot of businesses, you know, you obviously think about this a bunch. It's it's obvious with uh, the the knowledge that you bring to bear. But a lot of executives out there probably haven't thought too much about this. I, I know my um, one of my best friends, um, you know, gets up every day and goes into her office, and that's normal. And and she hasn't been doing that for several months now, and and it's uh, very discomforting to her and and to her manager even more so than her. And so I'm curious, what do what what do we need to learn right now about how we all need to to work? I mean the future's here. You know, you yeah, said earlier I mean, yeah. when this is all over, post what we're living in now, but is there a post really? Or or is it really now that we're there, we're in the future and we need to figure it out. And, and how can we do that as we're living in it? 
So, you know, one of my favorite authors is a guy named William Gibson, and, and you know, he's, he's notoriously quoted as the guy that said, the future is here, it's just unevenly distributed. And uh, I always thought, what a prescient thought that is, right? You know, and what COVID has done is it has forced the distribution of the future across the whole world, right? You know, so we're all kind of in this lockdown, work from home, work from work from other places, right? Work from anywhere is a, an acronym, acronym that I've seen a lot lately, WFA, working from anywhere. And, you know, for years, many of us in IT have said, you know, we don't actually have to be there. We can do everything that we need with an internet connection and a keyboard. And yet, all those things that I just talked about, about the value of the human to human and the value of the conversations, the value of getting to know people, understanding them, right? Those are hard to do digitally, right? And, and you look at all the great tools that are out there for collaboration and the virtual event uh, stuff that you know we, we all have been participating in for the last several months. And, and what we all miss, and I, I imagine it's it's even more so for those of you that are by normal role, constantly in that environment of going to live events, you miss the networking, you miss the the contact with the other people, you you miss the breakout sessions and the 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 you know the clusters around the coffee pot where you get to know people, right? And uh, you, you you take away not just knowledge from the event, but connections to others and new relationships. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I see uh, kind of falling by the wayside and, and it's and it's becoming a point of frustration for a lot of folks because you're like, well, that, you know, that's really hard to do in a digital conference. That's, that's almost impossible to do in a digital conference because there is no serendipitous uh, accidental meetings, right? There is no, you know, there's no, no venue for that in the digital world. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things we're going to see is, yeah, we're going to have to figure out how to do that back again. We're going to have to get back to live events in order to facilitate that. And we need to think differently about what that value is, because it's not just the content of the sessions. It's that interaction outside the sections that that is what is being most missed by folks that attend those things. When I think about, you know, kind of this post-COVID, you know, it's things like that, right? What are we learning about how people really want to work, really want to connect, really want to collaborate, and, and what tools do we need to be able to do that better if we stay in this mode for, for a lengthy, lengthy period? If this is the new world of work, then, then what, are we, what else can we bring to it that'll, that'll give us that human to human uh, in a better way, right? And I want to say this too, you know, because one of the other things that's, that's been fascinating to me is the number of companies that I've been talking with that, that have essentially said, you know, we never thought we could work remote. We always thought you had to be, you know, having everybody together in a big environment with, you know, lots of conference rooms and workspaces where people could come together. We never thought you could do this. And now the, the, those folks in large percentages are saying, well, maybe we'll never go back to that. And maybe we don't need all that commercial real estate that we thought we needed because we're just as productive working without that as we were with. And so I think we're also seeing that some of the core assumptions of, you know, how we work, where we work, how we work together in, in different environments, that's also being shifted pretty dramatically by, by the COVID lockdown. And uh, I'm interested to see how that goes. You know, there's already been, you know, just as a point of reference, 
the whole open workspace move, you know, everybody was, you know, getting to the big open workspace. Uh, and then the, the statisticians started really going to work going, you know, it actually didn't help people connect better. It actually drove people further apart. Now people are wearing their headsets and, and their earphones are in all the time because they don't want to be distracted by the folks that are right in, in their face and right around them. So that is kind of a precursor to what we're experiencing now in some ways, right? You know, I need my space to be able to do my creative work by myself, my own way. I can't, I can't conform to necessarily your way, Zena, because you like to play loud music while you're doing your best thinking. I need it to be quiet, right? And so you start getting into, you know, the differences in how people work and what their individual work styles or learning styles are. And you go, maybe we need to rethink a lot of things with regard to how we work together. So I think, I think we're at the beginning of that conversation. I don't think we're near the, the middle even at this point. I think we're still at the beginning. I think we are too. And, and it's interesting. I don't think it's an either or, to be honest with you. I, you know, I mean, I am a home worker, a remote worker, work out of my, from my home office. But when we, you know, were pre-COVID, you know, we do have an office here in town that I would go to twice a week. It, you know, I might not spend my entire day there, but I would go in to talk with my customer success counterparts, my marketing team to work with, you know, the the solutions uh, engineers and things like that. So, you know, I don't think it's an either or. In a previous environment, work, life, we had an open concept uh, floor. So the the floor was very open and, you know, but there were what they called working pods where they were closed rooms, you know, one or two people size that you could go in and take and, um, you know, to, to get away and to have that quiet space as well. So, you know, I, I don't think it's a one size fits all. And, and I think that remote, that idea of having a closed off working space now, when I think about it, well, well, home would have been a good place to go to have that that silent working space, but yet still have an office to go to uh, where where you could in, engage uh, with everyone. And it's interesting because I have a 16 year old son. He's a linkster born, uh, you know, with uh, technology available to him from uh, from birthday. And he feels just as socially engaged with his network sitting on his couch because he's grown up in that environment. So I'm wondering if, if uh, you think in, you know, let's, let's say 10 years, that even that need to be in local proximity to the individual to fill that connection even is going to be lower than it is today with people like, like us who are used to that. And, and, if, and if with COVID we move to having more school distance learning and online learning, now, now kids become more accustomed to creating those kinds of relationships, not physically next to each other or other either. So I'm wondering what kind of an, Im an impact you think that might have, let's say in five to 10 years. I think that's a really interesting question. You know, I, I also have, uh, you know, kids that are, that are, you know, I've got an 18-year-old and 21-year-old here at the house with me right now, and a one-year-old, almost two-year-old grandson that I see every day. And, uh, you know, and it's fascinating because I agree with you 100%. My two older kids are, you know, obviously very connected to their network all the time, right? They're almost never disconnected. They're, they're texting and mostly texting, uh, you know, all the time with their friends and their their little you know, networking groups, but they met them at school. They met them at school. They met them in real live ways, not 
they didn't just accidentally, you know, meet each other over the interweb and develop a close relationship enough to text each other all the time. Right. So, so there's point. a real life aspect of connecting. And then there's the staying connected through the digital means that, that I think is an interesting, you know, kind of tightrope to walk down. Right. You know, and uh, you know, and, and it, you're also seeing, I, I want to throw this at you too, because it's, it's worth thinking about, you know, over the last few years, folks that have been planning vacations have stopped planning for, I'm just going to go to the beach or I'm going to go to the mountains or whatever. And they're, they're actually working with experienced planners, right? And they're going, look, I don't want to just go, you know, buy a t-shirt from this place. I want to go have an experience that my kids and my family can remember forever, right? I want to create an experience. So this, this shift to, you know, experience curation, let's call it, versus, you know, acquisition of material stuff or, you know, acquisition of, I just, I need to go get away to the beach for a while, whatever, right? It's very related to this conversation about how do people actually build connections, whether they're permanent, lifelong friends, how many of those do you have? Not many, I bet. Short-term acquaintances that are going to kind of come and go over the years, there's lots and lots of those. You know, some of them can be really, really close. Uh, what I would use the word intimate. They can be intimate friends with you for a while, but then they just kind of go away, right? And, um, you know, and so you, usually back to span of control, you wind up at the end of your life with five to seven life friends that, that are with you for the whole ride, right? And then everybody else is kind of a pass-through person. And then some of them are, you know, more ephemeral, let's say, than, than others, right? They're, they're, they're less substantial because they're only with you for a short period of time, right? And, uh, you know, they come and go. The reason I'm saying all this is because I think that's what the, the younger kids are looking for is that they're, they're hungry for that deeper connection and that understanding of, yes, yeah, some of these folks are going to be with you forever, right? And you really need to be careful about all of them, because you never knew, know where they're coming from. You don't, you never know where your life friends are going to come from along the way. You know, it's, it's similar at work. You know, you got folks that you work with for seasons and you move around from one part of a company to another and from one company to another. And then you go into your own thing for a little while. And, you know, who are the people and the relationships that you're counting on to support you through those life changes that you're going through, right? And this is not about technology at all. Now, this is all about the human to human, right? And I think what we're seeing is our, our kids, your, your son, my, my son and my daughter, they're looking for something more meaningful in their relationships. And they're looking for something more meaningful in their work life. And we're seeing that, again, Simon, Simon Sinek talks about the why, you know, lots of great thinkers out there talking about, look, you got to find some kind of noble purpose to attach to, attach to in order for, for the younger generations to feel good about committing their time and energy to whatever that effort is. So like I said, this is becoming much more about human to human and less and less about technology, while at the same time, there's more and more exciting technology being developed on the planet right now than ever in the history of the planet. It's just phenomenal what's going on and what we can do with technology. Can we do those things with technology that really answer that heart's cry for the younger generations? And frankly, for our parents as well. Can we help them have better, more meaningful, more delightful encounters with other humans 
that you know lead to those kinds of long-term relationships and even better short-term relationships for the season that that those folks are in our lives. So I think that's where you know to me this is a fascinating time to be alive and you know and it's it is great time. It's a it's a wonderful time. I know there's a lot of chaos out there in the world because of COVID and a lot of other you know various ideologies at war with each other. But this is an exciting time to be here on our planet doing what we're doing. I couldn't agree more. And when you start talking experience of, of course, you you speak to my passion as a head of global customer experience for Blue Prism. I'm proud that uh, my company has acknowledged that we do live in an experience economy. And while we probably don't get it all right, we we think about this and we try to get that human to human connection right and it is a bit chaotic out there but it is also i agree a phenomenal time to be alive walt i'd love to have you back on the show to uh, talk a little bit more about that and you know looking more to the future and talking a little bit more around transformation on on how we do build a future of work that is noble and gives purpose to, you know, these, these younger kids of ours, you know, looking forward to my son, the next four years uh, and four years for your, your, your children as well will be very formidable, you know, uh, so let's see what we can do to, to help them have the futures we both want for them and all of the younger generation out there. Well, I'd be happy to, Zena. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation today a lot. Uh, hope, hopefully the audience will enjoy it as much. So I'd love to come back. Uh, just let me know. Let me know when. Great. Perfect. Well, I'll be reaching out separately on that. But thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, uh, you can check out the show notes for um, how to connect with Walt and um, all of those great books and uh, authors that he mentioned. We'll outline those for you in show notes as well. So thank you very much for joining today. And we look forward to having you join us on the next episode of Generation Digital Workforce. You've been listening to Generation Digital Workforce. If you want to hear more about RPA, AI, and other cognitive technologies that are shaping the future of work, join us next time as we continue to go deeper on these topics with industry innovators and experts. To make sure you never miss a future episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. And if you've liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. It's one of the best ways to help more people find valuable content. For show notes and more info, visit us at blueprism.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.